Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Joy Neumeyer. Today we'll be talking to Dan Healy about his book, Russian Homophobia from Stalin to Sochi, published by Bloomsbury. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joy, for having me. So I'd like to begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to studying Russian history and to this topic in particular. Well, good. I made my first trip to the Soviet Union when I was 17 years old in 1974. I got hooked on the language. I studied it. Um, for my first degree, Russian language and literature at the University of Toronto. Um, and I was also coming out. This was in the 1970s and becoming a gay activist. And um, it seemed very difficult for me to imagine how one could put my interest in things Russian and my interest in um, gay, gay politics, gay history uh, together. Um, and I'm talking about the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, it wasn't until the end of the 1980s I was working taking tour groups to the Soviet Union, that it was obvious that the Soviet Union was changing, and I decided I wanted to go back to university to resume an academic career at that point. And it's then that I decided to study the history of homosexuality in Russia. That eventually uh, resulted in my first book, uh, my PhD book, uh, which came out in 2001 called Homosexual Desire in Revolutionary Russia, The Regulation of Sexual and Gender Descent. And um, to be honest with you, I thought that that was probably um, the, the main book I would write about homosexuality in Russia. I thought I wanted to move on to other topics. Um, but, uh, and in fact, I was in the middle of a project uh, on medicine in the Gulag camps when, uh, and I'd been working on that for some years and begun to publish things about that, when in 2012, 2013, um, uh, the Kremlin began uh, its official homophobia campaign. And I felt compelled to um, park the uh, Gulag Medicine Project and look at contemporary politics and look at uh, the origins of homophobia in Russia. So what happened in 2013 uh, was that a lot of people asked me to present work or, or to talk about what was going on in Russia uh, and to try to explain where this homophobia was coming from. And I wrote quite a lot of material that year in terms of conference papers, seminar papers, uh, and talks for the public as well. And I felt that there was enough material there to, to pull together with some previous work I'd published to uh, produce a book. And so that's the book we have uh, that we're discussing today, Russian Homophobia from Salem to Sochi. Let's begin by talking about the book with a bit about that 2000, 2013 law that you mentioned, which is commonly referred to as the gay propaganda law. Um, if you could just briefly explain what it is and how it came into being. Well, the gay propaganda law, um, it's actually a, the law against propaganda for uh, non-traditional relations among minors. Uh, and it uh, uh, was passed in June of 2013 after about six months of discussion, uh, uh, a national discussion, a pretty horrific one in, in many senses, uh, around Russia uh, after the, the draft law was, uh, was presented to Duma uh, by uh, the Duma deputy of the time, uh, Yelena Mizulina. Uh, of the Adjust Russia Party. Uh, what I should say is that this law um, 
in a sense, originated in the provinces and came to Moscow. Um, at least that's the, on the face of it, that's the way it looks. It may have all been engineered by the Kremlin, uh, even the, the sort of uh, origins of the law in the provinces. And by that, I mean in uh, the various provinces, Krai, uh, Kraya, uh, Oblasti of, of uh, provincial Russia, passed their own uh, gay propaganda ordinances uh, in 2010, 2011, 2012, and these began to gather certain head of scene uh, and it appeared that uh, uh, there was a kind of spontaneous uh, development of, hom- of political homophobia across the country um, with local discussions going on but um, uh, <clears throat> it wasn't until the end of 2012 beginning of 2013 uh, that national leaders began to call for a national law uh, and in fact um, it's the uh, uh, local or the regional assembly of Novosibirsk region that uh, called upon the Duma, petitioned the Duma to uh, uh, introduce a national law. So uh, that's the kind of prehistory to the legislation, if you like. And what does it mean exactly? Well, it's um, uh, it's a it's an odd piece of legislation, obviously, because it uses this strange phrase, uh, non-traditional sexual relations. Uh, uh, strange to our ear, but in fact. Um, it's been very much in use in Russia um, for the last decade or more. And indeed, one of the original versions of this law, which was in Ryazan province, um, adopted in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was uh, originally uh, banned propaganda for homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, and transgender. Uh, that was the language of that original law, if I'm not mistaken. And the um, uh, when activists, LGBT activists, took uh, this law to um, court to have uh, uh, its legality uh, ruled upon. Um, the court introduced language into Russian jurisprudence about traditional versus non-traditional sexual relations. So we got this distinction in embedded in Russian law from 2010 uh, that heterosexuality was traditional and there was something non-traditional about uh, these other sexual and gender uh, identities. So the law uh, uh, prohibits the propaganda. There's another tendentious word, obviously. Uh, and in practice, this seems to mean um, anything, any statements that are positive or even neutral uh, about uh, same-sex love or gender uh, variance uh, in uh, public spaces where uh, people under 18 are going to be present or may be present. Um, so it requires uh, gay activists or LGBT activists, for example, to uh, badge their uh, publications as 18 plus uh, so that uh, they're not distributed to, to children. Um, it puts their websites in great danger uh, as potentially um, speaking neutrally or positively about LGBT affairs um, can be construed uh, as uh, so-called propaganda or promotion, uh, and it uh, it curtails speech in the public sphere, um, however you define that, whether that's uh, people marching down the street with signs uh, or uh, 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 the uh, a broadcaster, for example, talking about uh, same-sex love or gender variants uh, on television. Um, so it has all kinds of chill effects, freezing effects. And in fact, there have been uh, dozens of cases prosecuted since June 2013 um, against um, the owners of websites, against the 
against teachers and so on. So it had an actual effect in uh, jurisprudence and in, and in people's lives, obviously. So when the law was passed, how was it covered in Western media? And what do you think were maybe some possible missteps in how it was treated in this coverage? I, th- I That was one of the um, uh, motivations for me to write this book, because I felt that there were many missteps uh, in the way it was covered. First of all, I think that when we look at Russia, um, we see a modern country that we expect to behave uh, very much like ourselves. And uh, when it doesn't, we're angry and puzzled. Uh, and I think that this was one um, particular episode where uh, the anger and the uh, confusion um, needed to be uh, uh, called into question. Uh, uh, angry boycotts of Russian vodka and and um, uh, and, and petty spats and squabbles on on social media, for example. Those are some of the things that motivated me to um, uh, to write this book because I felt that actually there was a, a, very, a real shallowness, first of all, in self awareness among the critics of Russia on our side of the fence, uh, a, a very shallow awareness that, in fact, um, we had laws like this on books uh, in Britain uh, and um, in some cases around the United States um, until very recently. And, um, and in fact, the, the LGBT rights games that um, we have uh, institutionalized in uh, various European and, and uh, North American jurisdictions, those uh, are very, very recent. And uh, as we have seen, uh, they can be attacked by our own politicians as well. So I think that uh, there was a degree of, um, uh, of, of, of a lot, there was a lack of awareness, I think, of just how fragile those rights were in the West, first of all. And then there was this phenomenon that um, queer theorists call homonationalism, where we thump our chests and say, we're better than you are because we have LGBT rights and you don't. And I think that that kind of uh, um, uh, approach to Russia was obviously um, fated to fail, and that uh, a, a more knowledgeable approach, a more knowledgeable understanding about how Russia's got, Russians got to this place uh, was necessary. Mm-hmm. What do we mean when we talk about homophobia, and how easily can this concept be translated to Russia? That's a problem for us, I think. Uh, homophobia is uh, a concept we take for granted uh, as, a, as a, a really easy way to describe certain kinds of behavior. Um, but that's, it's a relatively new word. It was only invented in the early 1970s by gay activists and psychologists who were trying to explain hostility to homosexuality. Uh, and they invented this word, homophobia, uh, to attempt to explain it. Um, various uh, queer theorists since then have uh, come up with new terms like heteronormativity and so forth. Uh, I used the term heteronormativity in a conversation with a stranger, a straight stranger, the other night here in Oxford, and um, he had to sort of press pause and say, stop, just explain to me what that is. So it's, you know, it's not a word that um, that uh, journalists would use or that uh, the general public would recognize, generally speaking, unless they were uh, in academe. But uh, homophobia, I think, has really uh, become the kind of popular uh, label for uh, this kind of hostility, this kind of, uh, uh, of hatred, even. And, um, and as I say, it's a relatively recent word. So the, um, 
so the concept comes from the West. It comes from the United States. It's uh, it's been very widely adopted by journalists talking about the Western world where LGBT rights have been uh, institutionalized uh, to greater or lesser degree. Um, and then it becomes, I think, problematic when we start to take this word abroad uh, and apply it to other societies. One of the things I talk about in the book is the way in which um, our concept of homophobia uh, developed against a backdrop of uh, queer historical work, where uh, gay and lesbian historians began to look at the history of gay and lesbian persecution in the West in the 20th century. And uh, homophobia became very rapidly and uh, clearly associated with uh, uh, Nazi persecution of gay and lesbian people uh, in our uh, historical writing and in our historical research and also in our political campaigning. So in the back of our minds, I think we still uh, perceive the homophobe as somehow a, uh, a kind of uh, descendant of uh, the Nazis, the fascists, and, and fascist politics. Um, and that's a, a very powerful and perhaps uh, uh, inappropriate weapon uh, to deploy when we're looking at uh, countries beyond the West, um, where uh, maybe the experience of fascism has been different, or maybe there has been no experience of fascism, and also maybe where the experience of homosexuality itself has been quite different. So. Uh, if in many uh, non-Western societies, uh, uh, queer lives aren't necessarily all that visible, and people have uh, very different ways of describing queer life uh, in um, uh, cultures in, say, China or in uh, Asia, uh, in Kazakhstan or Brazil. And so, therefore, um, taking the word homophobia uh to those contexts uh, may not be the most productive way to look at those contexts. So I've, I've tried to sort of um, sketch a little bit the history of homophobia as an idea uh, in the introduction to the book, where I'm trying to explain how uh, political homophobia campaigns come about um, and how they, um, uh, how they morphed into the uh, uh, 2013 uh, gay propaganda law campaign in uh, the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems that part of what you're doing in the book is challenging this story of progressive modernization that puts Europe ahead in historical time as the destination where everyone else is going. Um, I think at one point you invoke Chakrabarty and provincializing Europe um, and how this, yeah, this can become very problematic, especially in a post-colonial context. I think it's very true that, um, as I say, we look at Russia and we expect it to be um, docile and sitting there waiting for its chance to become European. Um, and I don't think it's sitting in the waiting room for the train to Europe uh, in, uh, uh, in a docile fashion anymore, if it ever, if it ever was, in fact. So uh, it seems to me that um, um, we have to uh, think uh, less in terms of a, a kind of uh, uh, temporal uh, uh, pathway that uh, says first Europe gets LGBT rights and then the rest of the world will, of course, adopt LGBT rights in exactly the same way. I think we have to expect that LGBT rights uh, or rights and recognition of queer people in non-Western societies is going to require, first of all, public conversations and that those are not going to go smoothly and that those 
Um, and that those societies will require time uh, to uh, uh, recognize uh, queer citizenship in some way or other. I mean, look at our own society. It's taken us uh, most of a lifetime uh, to move from criminalization to uh, equal marriage, for example. Uh, it's taken from 1960s till now to, to get to that place for, for many Western societies. And not all societies are there. I think that's another thing about this is, is that there's been a kind of hardening and simplification of what it means to be European in this discussion with Russia about um, uh, homosexuality and homophobia. Uh, because, in fact, when you look more closely at the European Union, for example, um, the actual uh, uh, right protections that the European Union as a supranational structure uh, imposes on member states are pretty thin on the ground. And in fact, it's the individual countries that have adopted, uh, in varying degrees, different levels of protection for LGBT citizens. Uh, and so the Russians can be, could be accused, for example, of uh, 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 blaming uh, the European Union for imposing LGBT rights on, uh, on them or on Ukraine, whatever, or trying to. Uh, but in fact, uh, the European Union's pretty, um, uh, pretty indecisive about LGBT rights and uh, uh, only uh, expects uh, member states and prospective members uh, to protect LGBT uh, rights in the workplace. It doesn't, it doesn't expect uh, individuals, uh, individual states to uh, adopt people in marriage. It doesn't expect them to adopt uh, adoption rights. It doesn't expect them to even protect citizens against hate crime, as far as I'm aware. So uh, the, uh, the, the uh, perceptions across the sort of Russia Europe or Russia versus the West divide uh, uh, needed needed some correction as well. I think mm -hmm, absolutely. Before we get into the individual case studies that you explore in the book, it would be great if you could give us a brief overview of how hom homosexuality has been treated in Russia, in particular in Russian law, before the twentieth century. It's a it's a great question. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. In fact, I find myself saying that so often in this book. I'm very sorry to my readers for saying, here's here's another great research topic. But I think that there are probably at least 25 different research topics I propose in the course of the book. And one of them is actually deeper research into the early um, uh, situation of feeling people in Russia uh, before the 20th century. So we have this situation um, where uh, in modernizing Russia um, during the time of Peter the Great, an uh, uh, anti-sodomy law is adopted um, for the military only uh, in the early 18th century. And um, while there's no uh, uh, there's no new legal code imposed for civilians during the 18th century, there is discussion about extending that law to um, the civilian sphere. And uh, Mariana Muravyova and her research has shown that in fact. Um, uh, a version of the uh, military uh, sodomy ban was actually being exercised by the courts in uh, 18th century Russia. In the 19th century, in the early 19th century, 1835, Nicholas I adopts uh, an anti-sodomy law for uh, civilian Russians, and um, this is relatively late compared to um, many European countries, such as uh, Germany and um, and the UK, uh, when it comes to uh, banning homosexuality, particularly male homosexuality, um, but that was adopted um, in circumstances we don't understand very well. 
but uh, uh, persons convicted under that law, men convicted under that law, could be exiled to Siberia, uh, and um, <clears throat> or they could be uh, detained in, in prisons for um, four or five years. Um, it's only in 1900 that the exile uh, uh, as a mode of sentence is actually um, uh, rejected. And there is uh, a discussion about legal reform toward the end of the 19th century uh, that includes some discussion about uh, decriminalization of male homosexuality. Um, particularly, um, uh, Europhile and uh, Anglophile jurists uh, are uh, interested in, in getting rid of this law, in part, I think, because um, they are interested in the rights of the individual. If they're Anglophiles, like um, uh, Nabokov, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, the, uh, the jurist, or if they are uh, fans of European law, then they have the example of the Napoleonic Code, which is diffused across um, uh, many parts of Europe uh, in the early 19th century, uh, in which there is no uh, uh, anti-sodomy law. Uh, and that's an innovation of the, the Great French Re Revolution and then uh, the Napoleonic uh, lawmaking at that time. In society, it's um, still very difficult to talk about um, how ordinary people uh, experienced same-sex love or gender variety uh, and um, how much ordinary people uh, regarded or, or expressed hostility toward uh, the same-sex loving person or the gender variant. Um, these issues um, still need a lot of work, I think, to um, uncover them. In my first book, I talked about a kind of culture of masculinity that had some space for male same-sex relations and a culture, some isolated cultures of uh, female uh, same-sex uh, uh, environments like um, the bordello or the prison uh, where uh, women had the uh, opportunity to uh, express same-sex desire as well. Uh, but a lot more uh, research needs to be done into, into that to um, illuminate um, popular attitudes in particular. Another area we know very little about is actually what the church thought about uh, deviant sexuality in the 18th and 19th century. We have Eve Levin's excellent book on the uh, Orthodox uh, church up to 1700 and is thinking about uh, sex and uh, sexuality. But we don't actually have um, a similar kind of study for the modern Russian Orthodox Church. And I, find, I found that a, a returning frustration, a continual frustration as I was uh, working on this book because it was very difficult to talk with any accuracy about um, religious attitudes um, in the 19th century or the 20th century, um, in the Russian Orthodox Church in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like so much remains to be done. Um, so what happens with the revolution in 1917? So in 1917, um, we still have this uh, anti-sodomy law, uh, and the um, the provisional government uh, does not have time to to do anything about this. I mean, quite honorably, they they give women the vote, uh, and there is a law commission on which Nabokov sits, and possibly it would have decriminalized uh, male homosexuality. Uh, when the Bolsheviks come to power, um, sexuality is not first order concern of theirs, but they do actually. Um, see 
uh, um, the reshaping of gender relations as an important task, as a part of the program minimum, if you like, of the uh, socialist revolution. And so they very quickly secularize uh, heterosexual marriage, uh, uh, make divorce very easy, they uh, uh, decriminalize uh, and legalize um, medical abortion uh, on demand in 1920. Um, and they uh, promote uh, uh, women, uh, uh, women's participation in the public sphere um, in a radical way that looks very radical to Europeans. At the same time, they're writing new laws and uh, they uh, uh, begin to develop a criminal code that isn't actually published and, and enacted until 1922 for Soviet Russia. And in that, um, uh, homosexuality is decriminalized. So there is no uh, uh, statute in that law against uh, male homosexuality. They got rid of that. Um, and in fact, the, the entire uh, revision of the law um, is very gender neutral. Um, it is very, it, it reads very progressively. Um, they adopt one of the first laws in Soviet Russia uh, against the harassment of women uh, and so on. So there's a, a, a sexual revolution that is um, that is still actually rather poorly understood. I think that we have a um, uh, an impression, um, perhaps that grew up in um, the sort of uh, uh, in the minds of activists and scholars in the sixties and seventies, that uh, the early Soviet sexual revolution was a time of wild sexual experimentation and um, and free love and so forth. When in fact, uh, recent scholarship seems to point to a much more confused uh, and discontented uh, kind of uh, feel on the part of the population uh, about the sexual revolution. Uh, a lot of people feeling confused, dissatisfied, uh, uh, unclear, uncertain what the boundaries were, uh, and um, and fearful of experimentation. One has to remember that. Um, However wonderful the sexual revolution might have looked, particularly to progressive women, um, that this was a world without penicillin and a world where childbirth could be uh, a fatal, uh, have, could have a fatal outcome uh, because of the lack of penicillin, the lack of drugs to, to suppress uh, uh, infection, for example, um, to say nothing of, of sexually transmitted uh, diseases. So the um, the sexual, we need to look at the sexual revolution in, um, carefully and, uh, try not to sort of project too much of our own time back onto it. Um, having said all of that, um, I think gay men in particular had a, uh, a sense of, uh, themselves as part of the sexual revolution, however they understood it. And there's new work, uh, coming out by um, one of my doctoral students, uh, Ira Robugina, um, she's looking at letters of gay men to um, psychiatrists in particular uh, to get at what their self-conceptions were. And I'm very much looking forward to um, her completing um, her research on that, in that area. So she's going to be arguing, I think, against me, perhaps a little bit, that there was more of a sexual revolution than I've, and that we can be more upbeat about it than I have been uh, in my own work. Uh, I'm very excited to, to um, think that that might, uh, in fact, have been the case. So we have this situation in the 1920s where um, homosexuality is decriminalized, but um, in Soviet Russia and the rest of the Soviet republics, um, 
the, the situation is different because each republic has its own criminal code. And certain republics uh, continue to criminalize uh, male homosexuality, particularly in the South and in uh, Central Asia, um, because the Bolsheviks don't see homosexuality in those regions as uh, uh, produced by, uh, shall we say, a biological anomaly or variation, which is how they seem to see it in the European heartland, but they see it in those uh, peripheral regions as the product of social relations. And in particular, they're looking at Muslim social relations with uh, the seclusion of women. And so they, they imagine that men are driven to sodomy by the seclusion of women. Uh, and <clears throat> they also observe particular traditions, especially in Central Asia, of uh, the dancing boy prostitute, the bokshi uh, boy in Uzbekistan. Uh, and um, they uh, criminalize everything to do with um, the keeping of, of dancing boy troops and uh, male prostitution, even the sexual harassment of, of men, uh, as well as voluntary sodomy. Uh, all of those things are, are criminalized in uh, Soviet Uzbekistan eventually by the end of the 1920s. Um, so, so we see the Bolsheviks have different lenses for looking at this issue, depending upon whether they're looking at a, a modern Europeanized uh, uh, republic uh, such as Russia or Ukraine, uh, or whether they're looking at uh, a more orientalized, uh, uh, backward, and I'm using uh, uh, scare quotes there, uh, uh, republic uh, such as Uzbekistan uh, in Central Asia. So that's the situation up to uh, 1933. And in 1933, Stalin recriminalizes homosexuality. And he does that um, for reasons that I examine in one of the chapters. <coughs> excuse me, of the book, um, chapter seven, where I look at the current scholarship on why he's done that and what we can know about that particular episode, that turn against uh, male homosexuals in 1933. And I, I see that as the um, as modern Russia's adoption of a modern form of political homophobia um, with, um, with links to the present day in, uh, in, in Russian thinking. Um, and it comes out of uh, a typical sort of situation. Um, political scientists talk a lot about um, homophobic political projects as the uh, uh, a kind of device that politicians reach for in situations of economic or social crisis. And that's certainly what Stalin had before him in 1932-33. Famously, there's a famine. Uh, in the countryside, um, there's an enormous number of people moving into the cities. The population is is malnourished in the cities, uh, and um, there's a lot of uh, criminality and social disorder as the Stalinist regime is trying to establish uh, a kind of new uh, socialist uh, economy and a new socialist way of life in um, Soviet cities. Uh, and it's in that situation of a kind of urban social crisis that um, the Stalin uh, ruling elite uh, adopt this law, uh, a new law uh, against uh, uh, sodomy in 1933-34. Also under Stalin, in your first chapter, you describe homosexuality in the gulag. How would you describe the stance towards same-sex relations in the gulag, both among, you know, high officials and on the ground? And what do you think this tells us about social attitudes more broadly? Well, I think that the, um, the Gulag was a, um, a place, like any penal institution, 
um, uh, that was uh, generally speaking divided into uh, by the sexes, so men and women were segregated. And uh, uh, historians of penal homosexuality um, are, have turned away from uh, a pattern of analysis that says that oh, it's it's just a same-sex environment, and it's inevitable that homosexuality is going to take place in those places. It's actually it's more the case now that that historians are looking at the actual larger environment uh, that uh, the penal system fits within and changes, radical changes in the penal environment itself. Um, and those have a kind of determining um, and shaping uh, influence on the way homosexuality is experienced in uh, penal systems. So um, what I mean by that is essentially uh, the Gulag expands enormously in um, the early 1930s from a penal system uh, with tens of thousands of people to a penal system with millions of people in it um, in a very short space of time, precisely when this social crisis is happening in urban Russia. And the um, and, and the result of this is a change, I think, in the way that homosexuality is, is treated in um, Stalin's gulag. Uh, homosexuality was frequently visible in Russian prisons before uh, 1930, before the, the gulag. And we have many different kinds of reports of that from prisoners themselves, from criminologists and so on. So we know that there was a, a same-sex culture in those prisons and that it had both violent and, we could say, benign or romantic elements to it, um, both between women and between men. The um, interesting thing about the Gulag period is that you have this massive expansion of the uh, sites uh, of the Gulag and the populations in the Gulag. Uh, and what we see is uh, a massive expansion in the visibility of homosexuality in the Gulag. And this becomes a kind of fixed aspect of Gulag life. Um, uh, by the time the Gulag matures. So um, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the prisons, we have uh, both violent relations, as I've said, and more romantic relations. And I talk a bit about the, um, the distinctions and differences there. Historians have traditionally said that, well, uh, the women treated each other much more gently and much more romantically, and the men treated each other much more brutally and much more violently. And I think one has to temper that picture a bit. Um, men could also be gentle with each other in that setting, and women could also be violent with each other uh, in that setting. And we see examples of that. I used um, uh, memoirs from Memorial, uh, where you had um, uh, Gulag survivors who uh, wrote about the homosexuality they witnessed. One of the one of the troubles with um, writing that chapter was we have very few uh, uh, documents written by. Uh, queer people themselves uh, who uh, went through the uh, who went through the gulag, and we have very little documentation within the gulag itself in, in the administration's archives uh, that discusses homosexuality during Stalin's lifetime. Um, that material does not seem to be in the open parts of the gulag archive. It could, could perhaps, I think, be in the um, FSB's archive uh, in, in more <clears throat> internal security archive of the Gulag, but we don't have access to that. So in the in the the post-Stalin period, um, we see an explosion of discussion about homosexuality in the Gulag camps among uh, Gulag administrators and experts, and that tells us a lot about what was going on before. Um, 
uh, about the nature of, of same-sex relations, the violence that uh, uh, some uh, male uh, criminal sexual relations were, were based on, uh, and also some of the um, uh, uh, more disturbing for uh, some of these experts, uh, relations between women that weren't, weren't violent but were romantic and would appear to deflect ordinary women, straight women, away from uh, heterosexuality and toward perversion. Uh, they're very concerned about this. There are several, um, several conferences held in the 1950s to discuss a whole range of pathologies that are uh, seen to be happening in the gulag. And the, um, the reformers of the gulag are very determined to suppress visible homosexuality. They say that in the Stalin period, homosexuality was far too visible and far too much indulged in uh, the gulag of Stalin's time. And now what they want to do is to use science, uh, to use propaganda, to use education, uh, to get rid of that. And so they begin to try uh, various methods of uh, propagandizing public lectures, um, discussions, naming and shaming in the camps themselves uh, to suppress uh, visible homosexuality. And I posit in that chapter that that, that um uh, proliferation of discussion about homosexuality in among the prisoners uh, actually prompts the prisoners to begin to uh, label various prisoners as queer uh, much more aggressively, and particularly through the, the medium of tattoos. Um, we don't have very much in the way of speech or recorded speech by um, prisoners, but we can look at the tattoos that they put on their bodies and try to interpret those. And I think that there's a uh, a wealth of information there about how um, prisoners regarded uh, the homosexual as particularly degraded, uh, as someone who was um, uh, could be taken advantage of, uh, who was an outcast within the sort of social world of the, uh, of the of the gulag itself. Also, on this note, you make an interesting point about the role that intelligentsia narratives played in perceptions of homosexuality in the gulag. Could you talk a bit about that? Certainly, the. Um, uh, Many of our, our our perceptions about what happened in the Gulag are really formed by uh, intelligentsia survivor narratives. Uh, so the great uh, the great writers like Solzhenitsyn, uh, Eugenia Ginsburg, Varlam Shalamov, and many 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 others. Uh, these people uh, spoke about homosexuality uh, and indeed much of Gulag sexuality um, um, with a shade of disgust, as uh, Adi Kunzman says, and that. And that sort of attitude towards uh, homosexuality as a as a kind of pathology of the Stalin period, a pathology of the Gulag and its injustices, um, was a kind of legacy that those um, heroic, otherwise heroic, uh, Gulag survivors bequeathed to subsequent generations of um, intellectuals and democrats in Russia. Um, so that um, really up until 2013, I don't think. Um, the average uh, uh, dissident, uh, the average uh, Gorbachev-era uh, Democrat or Yeltsin-era Democrat, uh, the average member of the Democratic opposition under Putin, uh, had any conception of uh, just how homophobic they were or understood that um, queer citizens uh, were fellow citizens. They saw them merely as a symptom of a kind of social pathology and a political pathology, the pathology of Stalinism. In the next chapter, you go on to describe some criminal investigations from Leningrad province in the 1950s. Um, could you briefly describe one of those cases and tell us a little bit about what it says about gender and power and same-sex relationships after Stalin? 
Because these, the, this is quite a, um, uh, a detailed chapter about these two cases, and both of them involve um, clusters of men who are uh, who have sex together, but who are also involved in straight relationships. Um, and I think that this um, points to um, points to several things. They're they're in small villages and towns outside of uh, Leningrad, uh, in in the countryside. But these are not um, agricultural villages or or collective farms. They're actually small sort of settlements of an urban type where there are um, <coughs> uh, factories of various kinds or or uh, peat cutting operations and that sort of thing. These are um, married men. These are men who uh, aspire eventually to get married. Uh, one of the cases is about uh, a man who uh, works in a bathhouse uh, in a small uh, town. And he uh, has one of the, I think, two or three gramophones in the entire town. Uh, one day he's found hanged in his uh, uh, room in the bathhouse where he lives, and his gramophone is missing. The police come. They know that this uh, individual is a strange person. Um, it, he uh, he has a lot of strange uh, personality traits. Uh, they they know his his gramophone is missing, but they decide that this is a suicide and they close the case. Three years later, his gramophone turns up in the possession of a, a young man, uh, younger than uh, the original victim, and uh, it turns out that uh, the uh, the young man. Uh, murdered uh, the older bathhouse attendant for his gramophone uh, and after some kind of uh, sexual conflict. Uh, it appears, however, in the in the court case that um, they had had sex many times together and that they uh, had been in some kind of relationship. So it wasn't just a, a clear-cut case of what we would call in today's jargon homosexual panic defense, uh, where um, uh, where we, we, we say you know, that someone would, would naturally want to kill uh, uh, an assailant who made a homosexual advance at them. Um, and <clears throat> what I found interesting in the um, sort of uh, wider textual, textual and textual world of this case, about 250 pages that case file, um, was the, the world of, of, of women and uh, other relationships that these two men were bound up in. Um, uh, the bathhouse attendant with the gramophone uh, had often brought his gramophone with him to uh, a woman's barracks um, where there were often parties. The young men uh, uh, entertained soldiers uh, and uh, military men from a nearby base, uh, and his gramophone was very welcome there. Uh, I don't know how many records they had. It was kind of like coming with the, the only iPod in the village, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he was very useful to those women as, as someone who could provide this this um, facility. And, uh, and they were very useful to him because they, they provided this kind of world where there were a lot of men uh, who were uh, on the prowl for sex uh, and who might or might not get it with the young ladies uh, in this particular barracks. So his relationship with the women interested me. And also the uh, young uh, uh, recently discharged uh, soldier who killed him um, and who had just, just, just got married uh, to a woman much older than himself. Um, all of that, those, those relations uh, I unpack in this particular chapter and also in another case where very similar things are going on uh, to talk about the sort of fluidity of sexuality, the fluidity of identity, um, the variety of masculinity that these men create for themselves, the way that they're uh, Queer relationships seem to be constructed around respect for the other person. Uh, consent is very carefully constructed. 
whereas some of the relationships they have with women are very uh, non-consensual, very violent, sometimes exploitative uh, and transactional. And uh, I just thought that that um, put on the map a, a sort of sexual world that we know very little about uh, in our understanding of, of Russian social life in the uh, post-war period, and also illustrated ways in which homophobia um, was deeply embedded in practices that also uh, uh, shaped uh, misogynist perspectives on uh, on straight relations, for example. Yeah, as you point out, it, it certainly challenges the notion that there's this positive subaltern queer world waiting to be uncovered. Yes, yeah. So that was the thing I, that was very striking when I looked at that. And other, I'm not the only uh, queer historian who's, who's found you know, unattractive subaltern queer worlds, but I think that they, uh, they merit a lot more attention than they get in a scholarship. To skip forward a bit, what was the LGBT experience like in the late Soviet world compared to the Western capitalist world? Um, for example, how would you compare gay life in Moscow in the 70s to, say, what was happening in New York in the same period? It's a good question. I think um, uh, historians are uh, have talked about a kind of <clears throat> political deferral um, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, in, in, in communist Eastern Europe, uh, compared to the kind of explosion of, of gay liberation and uh, lesbian feminism in the 1970s uh, that we see in America and um, parts of Western Europe. Um, so for queer people in, say, Moscow in the 1970s, you see emerging um, a, a much more visible and to some extent a more confident subculture, but it is very much a subculture. Um, it's one where um, uh, public spaces become very important as, as meeting places, um, and uh, these become uh, notorious. If not, they're not flagrantly visible. There's certainly nothing like gay pride in Moscow in the 1970s, uh, but um, uh, police are very much aware that there's, uh, there are um, cruising sites and, and meeting places for gay men in particular, um, in the little park in front of the Bolshoi Theater, um, and in the streets and, and avenues uh, around the Kremlin, uh, Alexander Gardens, and uh, actually going up towards uh, the Lubyanka of all places and uh, along to uh, Nogin Square. So the um, uh, the world uh, of um, sort of queer Moscow in the 1970s doesn't have doesn't have a, 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 a an overt queer politics, but it has uh, spaces where people gather and where people talk. And one of the things I try to do in the chapter about um, the emergence of a, a queer subculture in late Soviet life is to look at um, the kinds of uh, things that uh, uh, people in those spaces said to. Uh, uh, Westerners in particular, or said to each other, um, that have come down to us in, in the sort of articles that were written in the gay and lesbian press of the West in the time. So we get a sense of a, uh, a, a developing identity, a developing solidarity. Um, very difficult to talk about community, but there's a, a, a strong sense of, of injustice. There's an awareness of the way that gay liberation uh, is taking off in the West and the possibilities that it seems to offer. Uh, there's a strong sense of uh, common language as well, common nicknames and common forms of speech uh, in um, on the Pleshka, on the on the sort of cruising sites of uh, uh, central Moscow at this time. Um, I thought that was one of the most interesting things about looking at the 70s and early 80s in in Moscow was looking at going back to that sort of gay liberation press material and thinking about um, what people were saying and how there was an interaction already already almost a transnational 
sort of uh, uh, sharing of ideas between uh, queer communities in, in Russia and uh, from Western activists as well. And then, of course, in 1993, um, shortly after the collapse, homosexuality will be decriminalized as part of this packages of laws that's pushed through quite quickly. And um, since we're almost out of time, I'll skip over some of the really fascinating material that you have about this profusion of um, pornography that happened in the 1990s. I encourage everyone to read the book so you can get uh, get a taste. Um, <laughs> I, I would just say that, that that chapter does have illustrations. It does, it does indeed. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, to kind of wrap up and bring us back into the present, um, you point out that writing one's social group into your national history is really a key means of legitimation and achieving full citizenship. What are some of the challenges to writing queer history today in Russia? Um, in the final part of the book, I, I look at these challenges, and I think the first set of challenges revolve around writing the history of um, persecution of gay men and lesbians in uh, 20th century Russia. The second set of challenges I see are related, but they're about um, the practice of biography in Russia and how um, uh, Russian intellectual traditions and cultural traditions reject the idea of taking the sexuality of the subject of biography seriously. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then finally, I look at the um, expectations we have of queer progress in Russia, um, looking at it from the West, and think about some of the ways that, that Russians and people in, in the Russian-speaking world, so not just in Russia, but in other Russian sort of contexts, um, are uh, doing things that are similar to what um, queer theorists suggest uh, we should be doing in the West as well, to uh, write ourselves into our uh, national stories to uh, endow ourselves with a common past. So to back up a bit and go to the um, problem of writing history, um, I look specifically at the uh, 1933-34 episode where Stalin adopts the uh, um, anti-sodomy law, uh, or restores it, if you like, uh, and um, what, can, what we can know about that law and what, what we still don't know about that law. Um, uh, and one of the things I try to do in that chapter is to criticize historians who have had privileged access to material that's very important for knowing about um, this episode, for knowing about um, the secret police initiative that, um, that put the, the suggestion for a law on Stalin's desk. Uh, and, uh, and historians have, have presented material um, in a very unprofessional and often homophobic way. Um, when it was uh, when when the very scraps of information we know about, for example, um, the letter to Stalin from uh, OGPU deputy chief uh, Yagoda to uh, propose the criminalization of homosexuality, we have very little sense of of, of um, the context that letter was was presented in. Um, when Stalin enacted the law, uh, he got a letter very quickly from a British communist who was living in Moscow at the time, working for the Moscow Daily Times a gay man named Harry White, a Scotsman. Uh, and uh, uh, when that letter was published um, by the Presidential Archive in 1993, the editors who published it uh, treated it as a kind of oddity, as, as a curiosity. They labeled it humor from special collections. They didn't actually uh, try to understand the content of the letter. Uh, they just looked at it as some kind of um, eccentricity. And... Um, and I, many other fragments of the story have been brought to light by people with absolutely no training in how to do the history of homosexuality, absolutely no training or sensitivity uh, in thinking about uh, homosexual Russians as fellow citizens, 
uh, usually often thinking about um, the victims of these laws and the objects of this particular term in homophobic policy um, as as less than human, as subhuman. And that really got to me, actually, when I started to look at this in deeper detail. So there's a whole sort of area around the criminalization of homosexuality to stop, and then the playing out of that law that needs deeper and more intelligent research. Uh, and I point out a, a plethora of, of places where um, uh, further de deep digging is done. And I'm very glad to say that there are many uh, young historians working on doctorates now who are doing some of that. In terms of the biography, uh, the, uh, the problem I have with that is a little bit like a problem that Addie Kuntzman talks about in her article with a shade of disgust. People do not wish to discuss, or the Russians, when they write a biography, do not wish to discuss the sexuality of the subject as though integral to the subject. Um, they would rather not talk about that at all. And so I take the example of three artists whose uh, uh, homosexuality um, is treated uh, through techniques of erasure or uh, or falsification or aestheticization uh, in order to... Uh, uh, essentially take the homosexuality out of the, the life of those individuals. And I think that that poses problems for LGBT activists today, trying to build up a profile of national heroes, if you like. And the final chapter looks at um, uh, our expectations uh, of what Russia should be. And in particular, what I try to do there is, is um, look at um, the work of artists who are creating queer archives in Russia, Belarus, and other places um, to try to uh, and on a positive note, to uh, see the ways that LGBT communities in Russia and the Russian-speaking world uh, can combat local homophobia uh, and are uh, trying to, as, as we've said, write themselves into um, a local story. Uh, with dignity and respect and uh, a sort of common mm. past. You mentioned some very interesting projects that I wasn't familiar with, like the Unstraight Museum in Belarus. I love the Unstraight <laughs> Museum. It's such a great idea. And uh, a group of uh, queer activists took me to this um, uh, party that was kind of opening for the Unstraight Museum. And it was also a place where um, uh, other artwork was being displayed by various queer artists expressing their, their experience of homophobia, their experience of, of, of uh, queer love. The Unstraight Museum project invited people to bring um, objects that were meaningful to them about their sexuality. And uh, they were very, very funny and and charm touching um, uh, objects, things like a Michael Jackson fridge magnet, uh, <laughs> or um, a, a queer magazine that had been published in the 1990s that someone had kept lovingly and, and preserved, or um, uh, uh, people's photographs of their of their friends and relations, those kinds of things. And uh, everybody was invited to, to write a little sort of blurb to explain why this thing should be in the Andrade Museum. And I just thought it was marvelous as an example of uh, archival creation that um, writes past that we can immediately identify with and that um, celebrate um, queer visibility in places and spaces where normally uh, queers are not visible, like contemporary Belarus, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully such projects will continue to flourish. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Before I let you go, please tell us what you're working on now. Well, I'm going back to that project on black medicine, and I uh, want to really look very closely at the doctors who worked in the Gulag. So it's going to be a, a more of a biographical project than I've worked on before, but I'm very excited about the idea of getting plunging into it and uh, getting back to um, my Gulag clinics and hospitals. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for speaking with us, Dan. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this podcast on new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. Thank you very much, Joy.